welcome. We are in the middle of a series called What in the World? This series is all about the questions you have had while you read the Bible. Sometimes scripture is confusing and we run across something and we're like, what just happened? That doesn't make any sense. So this sermon series is for you. Um, And in the spirit of Father's Day, we actually received a few questions that are applicable for Father's Day. So we don't even have to break the sermon series. How about that? So you're probably wondering, though, why am I up here? Aaron's on vacation still. And the real reason is this is an emotional sermon. Um, Every time I come up here, I get assigned an emotional sermon. So I am sorry. Next time I'm up, it'll be a little bit more fun. But it's probably why Aaron bowed out. Um, Traditionally or professionally, I am a marriage and family therapist. I deal with emotional issues all day long. So might as well do that on the weekend, too. Um, so I don't want to be known as the, the sad guy, though, so hopefully uh, we could have a little bit of fun despite the heaviness of um, this, this question. The question is, we lost our son 11 years ago, and so many even now tell us we have an angel in heaven. Can this be explained? I have always felt that we have a saint and not an angel. Where in the Bible is this concept explained? Our son was silently born and was not baptized. Is this an issue? As I said, pretty pretty heavy um, question, but very important. And it's already been a roller coaster of emotions, and it's only 15 minutes into church. Um, But let's stand and um, read God's word. Matthew 19:14 says this. But Jesus said, "Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of heaven." Let's pray. Dear heavenly Father, thank you for being a good and perfect father. Uh, we love you and in Jesus name. Amen. Be seated. First of all, um, whoever wrote this question, I am heartbroken for your loss. Michelle and I have experienced two miscarriages and still grieve them despite expecting twins. The loss of a child is an acute type of pain. It's like nothing else. While the circumstances of our loss were different, we've asked a lot of the same questions that the author of this question asked. Will we see them again? Are they with Jesus now? What happened to our babies? But before we go any further into this question, we have to acknowledge that the question itself is asking multiple questions. So let me break it down. Um, So here's what it's actually asking. What happens to babies after they die? What role does baptism play in salvation? Is this explained in the Bible? And what is a saint or an angel? Since this question is not about a passage in scripture, per se, um, but is multifaceted, the sermon might feel a little bit disjointed, but even though I'm not a professional, I'm going to do my best to bring it together um, for you guys. So as I said, this is an emotional question and has actually been debated uh, throughout church history. There's been a lot of speculation about this, 
because the Bible does not offer a clear picture of what happens to babies after they die. However, we can look at Scripture as a whole and what we know about the character of God, and hopefully that will allow us to piece together something that allows us to have an intelligent answer to this question. So let's start with baptism. This question asks, our son was silently born and not baptized. Is this an issue? This next part might offend you. Welcome to Element. We're pretty good about that, especially if you grew up Catholic. In the early church, um, and when I say early church, I mean the first two to three hundred years of the church's existence, um, there were lots of debates. So people on both sides who believed that only infants who were baptized would be saved, and on the other hand, those um, or would be allowed to enter heaven, and that salvation was deeply rooted in baptism. Some also believed that infants and others were, who were not baptized would be destined to hell. Culture of the day shaped a lot of beliefs, just like it did for us. And a lot of people were coming out of Greco-Roman culture, trying to apply some odd beliefs to Christianity. But in order to combat this, we have to go to the scriptures. The scriptures are timeless, and it's where we go to understand truth about, about God. So when it comes to having someone baptized for salvation, I and Element do not believe this is an issue at all, for a few reasons. Um, turn your Bibles to Acts 2.37, and we're going to take a look at a, a little baptism passage. And while you get there, I'll just kind of outline what baptism is like in Scripture. In every instance of baptism, both repentance of sins and acknowledgement of faith comes first. If you ever attended one of Element's baptisms, like the one we did two to three weeks ago, um, all the people who were baptized provide their stories. And it's, I was doing X, Y, and Z. I acknowledged Jesus Christ saved me and changed my life. So it's an acknowledgement of, of faith, and it's a repentance of, of sin. Um, and if you didn't get to read the stories, we actually published them online. They're really wonderful things to read, so I hope you go to our website, relevant.org, and look those up. Um, second, there are no instances of infant baptism in Scripture. And third, Scripture's baptism is, once again, considered an expression of faith. In Acts 2.37, um, you see this progression. And it says, Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to jump down to verse 41, which says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So once again, baptism is an expression of faith, a public declaration. Rising out of the water is symbolic for um, what Jesus did. Um, so going under the water symbolizes being buried just like Christ was. And then raising up means that we have uh, life just like Jesus did. We are raising into new life. Baptism is an expression of faith, which infants by nature cannot perform. 
as I said at Element, we do not believe you have to be baptized to be saved, but we do believe every saved person should be baptized um, because it is one of the only things that Jesus actually commanded us to do specifically. But I understand that anxiety a parent feels after losing a child and the concern for their everlasting fate. But baptism is neither a savior nor a foundation on which to rest after a loss. Scripture teaches us that only Jesus can save. No act of baptism has saving power. Infant baptism is nothing more than sprinkling an unwilling child with water. While baptism is a very honored and respected tradition in church's history, it's important to understand that treating it as the means to salvation is the same as developing a works-based theology. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nothing saves us other than the grace offered us through Jesus Christ by faith. If this challenges your beliefs about baptism, I actually hope it's a relief to you. Because the burden of salvation does not fall on any of us or our actions, but it rests in Jesus' action for us. And that is great news. We could rejoice in that. And that also frees us from potential grief if we did not baptize our child. So if we are good with infant baptism not being a requirement for infant salvation, let's move on to the next part of the question. Even now, people still tell us we have an angel in heaven. Can this be explained? I have always felt that we have a saint and not an angel. The short answer is you're talking to the wrong people. Um, they're, they're incorrect. Your child is, is not an angel. We do not turn into angels after we die. But grief is a common, painful experience, and we often can be guilty of saying silly and comforting things to try and make someone feel better. Maybe this has happened to you. I know it definitely happened to me and Michelle after our miscarriages. The author of the question asked, can this angel baby phenomenon be explained? And the answer is simple, no, because it's not a biblical concept. We do not die, head to the harp factory, get wings, become chubby, and play Stairway to Heaven for all of eternity. (laughs) Scripture tells us that angels are different creatures than humans. But what scripture does tell us is that in Christ, we become saints. The term saint in the New Testament comes from the Greek word, and I'll probably butcher this, is hagios. In the New Testament, this word indicates a consecration to God that results in God's righteousness being given to us. We call this imputed righteousness. It's a big theological word, um, but simply it just means God clothes us in his righteousness, and we do not do anything to gain righteousness. It's through his actions that we are made clean. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We often have this connotation of a saint as being someone who is holier than us, set apart, does miracles, and needs to be prayed to. That they're just fundamentally different than you and me. But the Bible, which is where we should get all of our truth about God, teaches that all of God's people are saints because God makes them so. So if you are in Christ, you are a saint. And that's a cool thing. Saint means purity by implication. Being a saint means we are confronted with the fact that holiness or sanctification is not some mystical, magical glow or power. We don't have a magical icon behind us. We are holy now. It is simply a designation, a recon, um, recognition of one's position with respect to Jesus Christ. In Christianity, it means we all have a restored relationship to God through Jesus. We are children and thus heirs. So we are citizens of heaven. God has adopted each and every one into his family. The Apostle Paul starts many of his letters like he starts the Philippians. Philippians 1.1 says this, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, That's you. You are the saints. We are holy. We are set apart. So far, we have established that infant baptism, though, does not have saving power and that we do not become angels after we die. But if we profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, we are already saints. However, infants don't have that ability to um, profess Jesus because they don't have the mental capacity. So we don't know. So all this talk about saints and baptism and angels have not touched the question of what happens to babies after they die. And this question, once again, emotional in nature, is not clearly answered in Scripture. But what is clearly answered in Scripture is what is God's character. So I believe, though, this answer only has three possible answers. I'm going to go over all three, and I'm going to build my case for what I believe. Um, The first is God does not save any babies, and babies are held to the same standard as others due to inherited sin nature. That one makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't really like that one. Uh, Number two, God chooses some babies and not others. Number three, all babies are saved by God. So as I said, those are the only three possible options that I I see. Maybe you guys see something else. But the first option, as I said, it makes people uncomfortable. And in all of my reading and preparation for the sermon, I didn't find a single Christian theologian who really is holding to um, theory number one. So that leaves us with God saves some babies or God saves all babies. Before we go further, I once again want to remind everyone that the answer is not clearly laid out in scripture, so speculation is okay. Dr. Wayne Grudem said this, Scripture does not tell us, so we simply cannot know. Where scripture is silent, it is unwise for us to make definitive pronouncements. So keep that in mind as we move forward. 
Um, but as I said, what we can answer is how the Bible portrays the character of God. And Mark Driscoll kind of outlined six different principles that help us gain an understanding of who God is in the light of this question. So principle one is God became a baby in his mother's womb. This part may seem silly, but it is so critically important. It is the most different presentation of God all throughout human history. God has not become man in any other religion. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's easy to gloss over this, but can you really believe that the God of the universe has humbled himself into a baby? And that means Jesus had massive blowouts and messy diapers, just like us and our kids. And that's humbling. The God of the universe is in the same position. Principle two is God is sovereign, which means he is the one who ultimately oversees us in the womb because he is over all. Psalms 139, 13 through 14 says this, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Scripture provides us with information that God can save us from the womb. Um, there's three specific instances, but uh, Psalm 22, 9 through 10 says this, You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you even at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. This point is a big point. If God can save babies from the womb, it opens the door to all babies being saved from the womb. Um, as I said, there's examples in scripture that talk about this. Um, the references are Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, and Luke 1, 15. These passages are all talking about prophets that were called from God while in the mother's womb. The fourth principle is that Jesus loves children. All throughout his ministry, he speaks fondly of children, even when his culture did not see the value in them. Jesus says in Luke 18, 15 through 17, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus continues to welcome children. He loves them. He wants them to enjoy the kingdom of God here, now, and forever. Although I won't know for sure if my miscarried babies are in heaven until I am there myself, I know that God is a loving father. And I find comfort in the picture of Jesus holding our miscarried babies. The way Jesus saw babies now informs the church and the world. Before Jesus, babies were counted as useless, often discarded and destroyed. Jesus stepped into that broken culture, though, and treated children with worth. He said, come to me, bring them to me. 
And that actually informs how we view children today. So the way we treat children stems from Jesus' treatment, even if you don't acknowledge that. The Bible also tells us a case story, a case study, though, of King David um, in 2 Samuel 12, uh, 15 through 23. It's the story of King David losing his son at a very young age. We don't know exactly how young, um, but it's a, it's a young child. And this story seems a little bit strange, but it tells us how King David was mourning um, as the child was alive. He fasted and grieved for his son while he was alive and sick, but after the child died, King David's functioning returns to normal. And in verse 22, he says this, While the child was alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that my child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. It's important to note that in this story, David was praying, fasting, and earnestly awaiting God to save his son. But God did not. We have to remember that God is not a genie. He does not have to heal or protect us from pain because we are engaging in spiritual behaviors like prayer, fasting, or baptism. However, he promises to walk through our hurt with us. And King David seems to recognize this as as truth, and he's at peace in the midst of his loss. It's one of the reasons that Jesus, when referring to the patriarchs of the faith, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he told his listeners in Mark 12, 27, that God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. This shows that even after two millennia of their alleged deaths, they were made alive in God. This is why David can say he will be with his son again, because he was alive with God. And finally, God is a good and perfect father. Although we don't know exactly who is saved and who is not, scripture tells us time and time again about the goodness and character traits of God as a loving father. If God does save all babies, and I do believe he does, it's not because the inherent virtue or absence of vice that babies possess but rather it is the goodness of God that results in their salvation. We are told that humans have fallen short from the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And that falling short extends to infants, babies, and people who do not have the mental capacity to understand the gospel. If we go back to the story of David and him grieving his son, I believe that David was able to return to a normal level of functioning, not because he was some detached parent, but because he trusted that God was good despite the pain. In that goodness, there is hope, even in brokenness. If you have suffered a loss of a child unexpectedly, 
I am deeply sorry. That pain is real and tangible. But I am praying that you will experience the unshakable confidence and the goodness of God. And he will offer you true and meaningful hope and comfort. (coughs) George Mueller, a Christian evangelist in the 1800s, understood the goodness of God. And when his wife died, his funeral text was this. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. The Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. The Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Mueller did not start with his wife and then build a case towards God's goodness. He started with God's goodness and then moved out. He started with the firmly rooted truth that the goodness of God is there no matter what, whether his his wife lives or dies. He interpreted the loss and the light of God's goodness. Do you know why we speak of God's goodness so much? It's because that's the gospel. That's the good news. That our God is sent on a rescue mission for all of us to seek us and save us and bring us home and make us saints. Far from being a capricious God who needs to be appeased, our God set out what holiness is and then met all the requirements of holiness himself through Jesus' death and resurrection. We may not have all the answers, but we do know with confidence that God is who he says he is and that he's in how he sees his people. And so when we are unsure and met with these trying emotional questions, let us first go back to who God is and his character before we get lost in the confusion and anxiety of our questions. Because real hope first comes from knowing the character and goodness of God. As we are continuing throughout this series, you have found that there's not often black and white answers to the what in the world questions you ask. And although that can be frustrating, it also is kind of freeing. It's freeing because it allows us to place our our trust and hope in Jesus and what he has done. And Jesus knows and has accomplished all things. We can rest in the work of the cross and remember that Jesus is loving, good, and faithful, even when our circumstances are challenging or don't make sense. And that goodness is one of the reasons why we come to communion each and every week. As with baptism, it is a way for us to respond to what Christ has done for us and is continuing to do. We find hope in the goodness of God despite the brokenness around us. And we remember he proved himself trustworthy through the cross and resurrection. Michelle's going to come back up and lead us in a few songs. And we worship because that's a way we can give glory to God. I'm going to move this. (laughs) 
Here at Element, we, as I said, we come to communion each and every week, and that's a response to what God has given. There's going to be offering boxes on the sides and in the back, and we give because it's an acknowledgement of how much God has given us. There's going to be deacons and elders in the back. If you need prayer, I would highly recommend going. For some reason, we have a culture that doesn't like to ask for prayer. But prayer is powerful, and it's okay to to go to someone and say, this is where I'm struggling, or I doubt in the goodness of God. Just pray with them. I believe there's donuts in the back. Grab some, fraternize, and ask each other some tough questions found on on the notes um, by the communion tables. I know this message is heavy, and when I'm up here in end of July, it's going to be a little bit more fun. But today, remember, we can find great encouragement in the midst of sadness. Dads, happy Father's Day. Cherish your children and love them today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being a good and perfect father. Thank you for being near to us. And thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your goodness even when there is pain and it doesn't make sense. Father, I pray that as people reconcile pain with the loving and goodness of your nature, that you will free them from that tension and embrace them and show them comfort. I pray that you will reveal your character to us. Father, if anyone in this room is suffering from from grief or loss, I pray that we could have confidence that you welcome children. You bring them to you and you you say they have worth. Thank you for being a good and loving father. Amen.